Talk Radio's red-headed stepchild. Solace Radio. We go where no talk radio has gone before. Right now, we're going to do a little series. We've grown, and so people, like I said, always are looking for new training, actually, and reaching out to, to Jewish people. i like to share this morning with something that's on my heart. I noticed... Well, actually, I've noticed throughout the years, the last 40, 50 years, actually. At the end of the uh, 40s, I was still too young, but I was, I was in there, just in case you were wondering. In the 50s and in the 60s, the world seemed, because of the Holocaust, because of uh, the war, well, that the world seemed to be pro-Israel. And they used to depict pictures in the newspaper with Israel as the little poor David and the uh, the Goliath was the uh, Muslim nations, the Islamic nations uh, against the, the Jewish people. But over the years, the 60s and the 70s, that all changed in the 80s and 90s, especially today. The world has changed. Today, the world, just a matter of fact, is much more pro-Arab, pro-Israel. I'm not against that. God loves the Arabs. I always say God loves the Arabs, but God is a Zionist. That's that's the way it is. He loves them. He cares for them. He wants their salvation. But he also has given promises to Israel. And so, but the world has changed now. And the the if you ask most of the people in the world, what's the problem in the world today? Many many people give you one word: Israel. That's what they say. Israel is the problem in the world today. And and the attitude toward our Jewish people is not a good one. What is refreshing, and I'm not telling you how to vote. I can't do that up here. But it is refreshing to see that there's panel, there's lineup of all those, uh, yeah, I can say it, Republican people. Uh, I didn't tell you how to vote. I'm just saying, bunch of Republicans up there in all those debates. And it seems like each one is pro-Israel. I like to hear that. I like to hear that about pro-Israel. You don't see it too much anymore. But I do find throughout the world, most of the world, and in churches, and among believers, the Jewish people are blamed for many things. And, um, the attitude, the attitude in the world today is almost Jewish people, well, there's a problem. They almost don't deserve to be saved. They almost don't deserve to have a relationship with God. We see it in theological circles and church circles and believing circles. We see it in what we call replacement theology, very big today. Basically, just summarizing, because I can't teach it all on that today, replacement theology, is that God has replaced Israel. Israel has forfeited the promises. Israel doesn't deserve the promises. So God, you know, looked at them, said, you know, you didn't do it. You didn't do what you're supposed to. So I'm replacing you and I'm replacing them with the Gentile world, the churches. And so that's replacement. They set Israel aside. I notice individuals many times, they will share their faith with people, but they say Jewish people really can't be saved. So it's don't waste your time sharing your faith with Jewish people. I, I see this in the attitude uh, of people. I see it now. Here's a different attitude, just to to let you know. There's something called the two, dual covenant theory. Do, these people actually dual covenant theory. They believe this. This isn't so much. Well, they say the world is under one covenant. The world needs Yeshua, Jesus, to be saved. Except the Jewish people. They say they're okay. They're okay under Abraham. We love them. We care about them. And we pray, for, uh, you know, we, we care and good things for Israel. But they don't feel the necessity to share their faith with Jewish people. To me, this is a crime because they, they say they love our people. They say the Jewish people don't need Yeshua. And I hate to say that. And I, I don't hate to say it, but it's very hard. Jewish people cannot know God, cannot have a relationship with God without Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah. That's as simple as that. 
our people. We might love them. We care about them. We pray for them. And you, 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 you might want to say they've suffered. They have for 2,000 years without Yeshua. So what I want to share today is the necessity for all people to share their faith with Jewish people. Now, you would expect that from me today, and you'd expect that from here. But it's my contention that every church in Orange County, every church in California, every church in the United States, every church in the world should have this same function. I believe that the Bible teaches us that we must share our faith with the Jewish people first and also the Gentiles. I feel there's a necessity that the Bible teaches us. And I, what I want to share today with you is why not just me, not just you, not just Shuva, not just, but every congregation, every congregation in the world, whenever they form congregations or churches, should say, what are we going to do to share the good news with Jewish people? That's what I want to share. If you have your outlines, I want you to take them out. I want you to fill this in. What I want to share today is basically that we should all share the good news. Now, let me just stop for a minute. I could go on forever, but I, I want to just stop for a minute. When I say good news, you know, someone comes to you and says, I have good news. All right, this is the real good news. Just let me tell you. Let me make it short and simple. Here's the real good news. Yeshua, Jesus, died, was buried, and was resurrected for our sins. Believe that. That is the good news. Another word for that, that is the gospel. Yeshua's death, burial, resurrection. We believe that and put our trust in that. That's the good news. That's the best news in all the world. We should share the good news. As we fill it in. We should share the good news of the Messiah with Jewish people because I believe it's God's desire and the heart of all the Bible. We are all, not just me, and everywhere I go, every non-Jewish person, every church, I tell them they should be doing whatever they can to reach Jewish people, telling them that Yeshua is the Messiah. Now, I get this from people all the time. I can't tell my friends and my neighbors that Yeshua, Jesus is the Messiah. And I say, why? Because they'll get mad at me. And I say, you're right. They will get mad at you. Some will be polite and some will get very angry at you and will call you names and will cut you off and will not talk to you anymore. Most likely they won't hit you. We've been hit and attacked, but most likely you will not. But we should share the good news with Jewish people. Now, let me give you a couple of reasons why I think the Bible. You might find other reasons. I want to give you a couple of reasons why I think we should all share the good news of Yeshua being the Messiah with Jewish people. The first reason is, and my wife doesn't like me saying this, she said, the first reason God says we should share the good news with the Jewish people is because God promises he's going to bless you for it. Now, what she says is you should tell people we should serve God because we love him, because he's blessed us, and we should. But God holds out promises in the Bible. And one of the first promises he holds out to us that uh, I think when he holds out promises, we should follow up on God's promises because he's promising to bless us. Follow along with me. And in that first point there, we say we should share the good news because God promises he's going to bless you. God made a promise. He formed a people from Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He formed a nation. And I like to think what God did is he formed a foreign policy toward these people. To the Jewish people. And this is what he said. He forms that in Genesis chapter 12. And God makes a promise to the Jewish people. He says, I'm going to bless these people. He says, I'm going to give them a land. We're not going there now. The land is the nation of Israel. God promises always to Abraham, the land belongs to you. We're not going. A land, I promise a blessing and a seed. 
The seed would be not just a multitude of people, but the Messiah himself. God made a promise of what he's going to do from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then he tells us, basically in Genesis 12, this special people, whoever they are, because with Abraham, we just had Abraham, but then we had Isaac and Jacob. But whoever these people are, he tells the rest of the world, look at these people. If you bless these people, I bless you. If you curse these people, I'm going to curse you. And we see that throughout the scripture. So God made a promise here. Look what he says in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country. Go forth from your your relatives. Go forth from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I always love that promise in Genesis 12 because when God says I'll make you a great nation, just remember Abraham didn't have any children yet. And he didn't have children until, was it Genesis uh, 16 when he had Ishmael? I think that's better. We're not going there. Okay. And I will bless you and I'm going to make your name great, Abraham. And so you will be a blessing. Now here's God's promise. God made the promise. I will bless those who bless you. Now listen carefully. This does not mean that we say everything that Israel does is good and right and perfect. We have, especially as Jewish people, we say, we call it for what it is. If Jewish people do wrong, we say it's wrong. They do bad, we say it's bad. But it's an attitude toward God's special chosen people. And you can sense it in people. You can sense that, of course, in, among, among our own, but you sense when a Gentile loves the Jewish people and cares for them and prays for them and does what they can and sacrifices and wants their best. God says, bless this people and I will bless you. It's a promise. And there it says, I will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, I will curse. And the idea in the Bible, it's what we call Talionic justice, is what God really does in the Bible. He says, if you bless them, I'll give you the same blessing that you wanted to give. If you curse them, whatever that curse is, I'll give you the same curse. God reverses it. It's almost like you push a stone and God's going to push it back on you. God makes the promises in Genesis 12, verse 3. I'll bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Now, if you trace this throughout Genesis, we're not going to, we don't have time right now, this part, we see that the promise God gave to Abraham, he repeats to Isaac. He says to Isaac, I promise you a land, a seed, a blessing. He doesn't give that promise to Ishmael. He gives it to Isaac. And he says, the bless, it's called the blessing of Abraham. And God says to Isaac, those who bless you, I'm going to bless. Those who curse you, I'm going to curse. God repeats it. And then God, I think it's Genesis 26, then Genesis 28 and Genesis 35, God repeats it again. Isaac, remember, has Esau and Jacob. God makes that same, the blessing of Abraham goes to Jacob. Jacob, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a seat. I'm going to give you a blessing. So that's what, to me, today, the whole Arab-Israeli conflict, just really, I, I struggle with so much. Because God makes it so clear that he loves the Arabs. He wants good for them. He wants them saved. And he does certain things for them. But he's got promises to Israel. The problem in this world today is that nobody wants anything for Israel. They don't want them to have the land, the seed of the blessings. They don't want anything. But God promises. To Jacob, God says the same thing. I'm going to bless you. Those who bless you, I'll bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. Some people say it's just for Genesis 12, 3 back then. Now, all of history. Those who bless the Jewish people, God blesses. Now, I want to trace, if I can, for a minute, the curse. God also says the curse. So follow, follow along with here. God keeps his promises. Follow along Genesis chapter 20. God, little illustration, I like this, because it says in Genesis 20, but God came to Abimelech in a dream. Now, let me just tell you real quick background. Abraham gets scared of the famine, so he figures he's going to go down uh, to another land, get out of Israel, and he says, Sarah, you're so beautiful. The whole world, will, you know, every man in the world wants you, you're so beautiful. And he says, because of that, he says, they're going to kill me and they're going to save you. So why don't you say you're my sister? 
for some reason, I guess they didn't, wouldn't kill brothers. They would kill husbands, but not brothers. So, so uh, Abraham says, says you're, t- say you're my sister and they'll spare me. And, uh, you know, who knows what they'll do with you. But, you know, Abraham was uh, not thinking of her. He was thinking of himself at this point. But anyway, so Abraham uh, says, so he goes down and Abimelech takes Sarah into his, uh, not her, I shouldn't say her, Karen, thank you, thank you, heard. Anyway, so he takes her there. But actually, he probably doesn't violate her, but he gets there. But then, this is what I love. He's innocent, Abimelech. He didn't mean anything bad. Abraham says, my sister, great, beautiful, come, come here. Now, so God speaks to him. Abimelech goes to sleep. He's happy. Got a new beautiful woman in his, and says, but God came to him in a dream in the night, and God said, and I love God's phrasing here. I just love this. Behold, you are a dead man. I just love that. He's sleeping, and God says, you're a dead man. What do you mean? Why? What did I do? I'm innocent. He says, you're a dead man because the woman you have taken, for she is married. And then, of course, his answer is, did he, Abraham, not himself say to me, she's my sister. Why are you punishing me? And she herself said, well, he is my brother. So in the integrity of my heart, God, I'm innocent. The innocence of my hands, I've done this. And God says, I know, I know, you are innocent. Okay, yes, I know. So, don't follow through here. He says, in the integrity of your heart, you've done this, and I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, God says, restore the man's wife. I love this. For he is a prophet, and I love, he will pray for you. Abraham lied. God, God's telling him, like, yeah, okay, listen. Give him back the woman, and he'll pray for you. I listen to him. You bless them, I will bless you. You curse him, I'm going to curse you. It's always traced that way in the scriptures. Those who bless the Jewish people. These are the immediate illustrations. Uh, Genesis 30, we know the confrontation between Laban and Jacob. But Laban said to him, if, if now it pleases you, stay with me, Jacob, stay with me. For I divine that the Lord has blessed me on your accounts. You bless Jacob and God blesses you. God's always done that. He says, stay with me. And uh, God bless me. He can. He says to him, name your wages and I will give it to you. For you had little before. Anyway, and the story goes, Laban, you know, blessed Jacob and God blessed Laban. Then Laban changed and started cursing Jacob. And God says, all right, well, I'm going to take everything away from you. I'm going to give it to Jacob. That's what God did. He reverses the curse. We see that throughout the scripture. God blesses his people. He's made a promise. Doesn't mean everything they do is right. We see it in, the, in the Joseph, Genesis 39. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. He was in the house of the master of Egyptian. Now the Egyptians saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused all that he did prosper in his hand. So Jacob found favor in his sight, and it goes on. The scripture always teaches, God will bless those who bless you. The one who curses you, God says he will curse. It's the promise. Now, we don't have to deal too much more with this, but it's very interesting. If you trace this throughout all of Genesis, trace it throughout all of Exodus, trace it throughout all of history, those who bless the Jewish people, God blesses. Those who curse the Jewish people, God curses. Pharaoh tried to curse our people. Actually, he had a foreign policy toward the Jewish people. It's always interesting when you trace it, because Pharaoh's foreign policy to the Jewish people was, we've got to give them labor and hardship and make life difficult for them. So you trace the first 10 chapters of Exodus, you see who God made it difficult on. He sent the plagues to the Egyptians. It's always interesting, those plagues, how we see God bless the Jews. I often wonder, for instance, in the plague of darkness, was it dark on this line and light over here? Because God said in, in Goshen there's light. So I wonder if there was a, you know, because in the darkness was so dark that they couldn't see, they couldn't move. 
Three days, it couldn't move. But I wonder if one of them just took a step over here. Oh, there was like, I don't know. I, I, I don't know how, but God gave it to, you know, I even think, this is actually, I'm sorry. I think there's an amazing miracle with the cattle. This, you know, if you study each plague, it's really interesting. But the cattle, I like this because God says he's going to take uh, all the cattle during the plague. And he does take the cattle. But then there's a verse that says, not one of the cattle in Israel died. Now, you tell me, I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of cattle. On any given day, one of the cattle in Israel had to die. But God could not let one of them die. Because if one of them died, they would say, well, just like our cat. God had to do a miracle just to keep all the Israeli cattle alive. They couldn't even die from natural causes. God's always doing a miracle. Pharaoh said, we're going to make it difficult for you. Instead, God said, I'm sorry, Pharaoh. We're going to make it difficult for you. Pharaoh says, Jewish people are multiplying too quick. We have to kill the firstborn in every Jewish home. We have to drown them in the sea. So God takes the strength and the might of Egypt, and he drowns them in the sea. God, they wanted to kill the firstborn of Israel and the firstborn of Pharaoh's. God reverses the curse. It's so clear, especially when you're thinking this. When you're thinking, who wrote Genesis 12.3? I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. Who wrote it? Tell me, somebody. Who? Moses. You're thinking, for some reason, somebody different wrote Exodus. But it's Moses writing it around the same time. And what Moses is trying to do is saying, remember 12.3, I just wrote it. Let me give you some illustrations of it. Moses is telling us that God is reversing the curse. Moses is just laying it out. He's doing his paper and telling you the hand of God, what he's doing. We see that throughout all the scripture. God reverses the curse. I, God tells, this is a good one, hundreds of years later, God says to the king, Saul, he says, Saul, kill the Amalekites. Why? Well, they attacked Israel. But people don't realize Saul was told by God, kill the Amalekites because the Amalekites attacked the Jewish people. Do you know when the Amalekites attacked the Jewish people? About 400 years before when they came out of Egypt. As they came out of Egypt and they were traveling, a couple were straggling on the end. The Amalekites killed them. And God watched it and noticed it. 400 years later, God says to Saul, take vengeance on them. Listen, God's time is not our time. God never misses a trick. He does it in his way and in his time. But he promises, those who bless my people will be blessed. Those who curse my people will be cursed. Antiochus tried it. We get Hanukkah. Um, Haman tried it. We get Purim. Everyone who tries to curse us, we get another Jewish holiday. So, Hitler tried it. The Germans hunted out our people. And for the next, last 40 years, our people are hunting out the Nazis who hunted out our people. God's ways are reversing the curse. Now, I will bless those who bless you. Let me tell you this. There's a lot of ways to bless the Jewish people. There really are. Well, let me tell you the greatest blessing that ever took place in my life. Someone dared to share the good news of Yeshua with me. They took their life into their hand. I was not a happy person with this. The greatest blessing you can do for any Jewish person, whether they think it or not, or feel it, or they're angry at you, the greatest blessing, yes, you can pray for them, you can uh, encourage them and help them and do everything you can. The greatest blessing that any of you today can do it, do it with love, do attack with wisdom, as we're going to learn next week, the attitude, but share your faith with Jewish people. It's the greatest blessing you can do. God promises he's going to bless you for it. First reason you should take the good news to the Jewish people. God promises a blessing on your life. Second, I want you to fill this in. Second, we should take the good news uh, to our Jewish people. Um, we should take the good news to the Jewish people because, and I, this, this I really like this, because I like to think we're commanded to. 
I think it's the pattern of all the Bible. We are called, now this is very, very important that you get this point. We are all called, whether you're Jewish, Gentile, we are all called to talk to Jewish people about Yeshua, the Messiah. It's the pattern of the Bible. Let me show you the pattern, I think. Uh, the pattern found in the Tanakh. Those of you who are new, Tanakh stands for Old Covenant, Old Testament. The T stands for Torah. The N stands for the Nevi'im, the prophets. The CH stands for the Ketuvim, the Psalms, the writings. And Jewish uh, words don't have vowels. We supply them. That word Tanakh means Old Covenant. The pattern in the Bible. If I were to ask you today, why did the Messiah have to come? And Jewish people are supposed to believe, as Maimonides said, with perfect faith in the coming of Messiah. I believe he said, with perfect faith in the coming of Messiah. Why did Messiah come? Why was he supposed to come? God promised, he said, the Jewish people were the chosen people. Our people don't know why we were chosen. Actually, you know, you talk to Jewish people, you say, you're the chosen people. Why were you chosen? They have an answer. They said, well, I guess we were chosen to suffer. That's not why we were chosen. Jewish people were chosen to be the lights of the world to be the light and testimony of God. Jewish people were called to tell people about God. Jewish people were called to bring forth the scriptures. The Jewish people were chosen by God to bring forth the Messiah. If I were to ask you today, why did Messiah come? Here's your answer. Messiah came to die for the sins of the world. I always mention, whether you saw the movie The Passion, whether you see it in the scripture, at his trial. And I always marvel the way it's done there, whether you like the passion or not, whatever. When Yeshua, the actor, the actor standing there in the scripture, it seems like everyone around Yeshua was in a panic. Everyone was running here and there. They're all, they were all, as we would say, freaking out. They were all uptight and didn't know what was going on. And the only one in his right mind standing there waiting was Yeshua. They beat him. He's standing there. They scourged him. He's standing there. They ripped his beard out. If I was Peter and John and Jacob, I would be saying, quick, Yeshua, let's get out of here. They're coming, they're coming. He stood because he knew why he came. He came to suffer and die for the sins of the world. That's why there's no surprises in the gospel. None. Nobody surprised him. Judas' betrayal didn't surprise him. Nothing surprised him. That's why he came to die for the sins of the world. Now, you'd be right if you said Yeshua came to die for the sins of the world. But. You should divide the world into two groups of people. Not left bubble, right bubble now, but you should divide a different division. You should divide the world into two groups of people. According to the Bible, according to the Old Covenant. There was the Jewish nation that God called out, Jewish people, and the rest of the world. God calls them the nations. In Hebrew, that's the Goyim. So there's the Jewish people and the Goyim. And the Bible teaches us Messiah came to this earth. Watch carefully. As promised by God, As a covenant by God, he came for the Jewish people and also the Gentiles. That's the way it's phrased. God didn't have to say it that way. But he's trying to make a point. And I believe, which I'm going to say in a minute, is God's point is this. Make sure this group gets the message of Messiah. Listen carefully. The message of Messiah was designed for the Jewish people. It was supposed to be for them. And also given to the Gentiles. That's the pattern of the Bible. Follow along with me. And the pattern in the, in the Tanakh, um, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 42. It's, this is one of what they call the servant songs of Isaiah. It's in a few sections in Isaiah 42, 49, 50, 53. It's, the, the, it's called the servant songs. The servant here being Messiah. 
Watch what it says. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one, whom my soul delights. I put my spirit on him. We know later on, this was seven years, hundred years before Yeshua. We know later on that this was Yeshua, Jesus. And it says, he'll bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice. His voice will not be heard in the street. A bruised reed, he will not uh, break. He will not put out a, a, a wheat. Dimly burning wick, a person just about to fall and collapse. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or dis, uh, crushed until he establishes justice on the earth. Now, look with me, verse 5, 42, 5. Thus says the Lord who created the heavens and the earth, created the heavens and stretched them out, spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to the people on it in spirit. God says, I am the Lord. I've called you Messiah, the servant, in righteousness. Why did he call him? I will also hold you by the hand. I will watch over you. God's going to watch over the servant. We're not talking about the nature of the servant yet, but anyway, he says, I'm going to hold you. And I will appoint you as a covenant agreement, a covenant to who? Everyone. To the people. That's the Jewish people. God appointed Messiah for our people. I know many, many Gentiles lovingly say to the Jewish people, you know, you also can come to Messiah. You also can join in with us. But I know another loving Gentile people say, we're so thankful. You're Messiah who came for you. He's included me. That's the real way it's done. And God says here that the Messiah was called as a covenant for our people. Look, but also he doesn't neglect them. He says, I will make you a covenant to the people, the Jewish people, and to be a light to the Gentiles, the nations. Messiah, the pattern. Messiah would come for our people and the Gentiles. And it says in verse 7, to open their eyes, to bring out the prisoners, set them free. Isaiah 49, the same thing. Isaiah says it again in a different way. Verse 5, and now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant. The servant, here's the purpose. Isaiah 50, uh, 49, 5. Here's the purpose. He formed me from the womb to be his servant. The Messiah would come to bring Jacob back to God. You see, the servant is Yeshua. He's going to bring Israel, Jacob's another word for Israel, back to God. The servant's purpose was to bring the Jewish people to God. That's what we're here for. That's why I come up here each week telling our Jewish people, turn back to God. Messiah came so we, as a Jewish people, can know our Messiah. And also the Gentiles, they could be included in the promises of God. Isaiah 49, verse 5, to gather, he says, so Israel would be gathered to him. Purpose is to bring Jewish people to God. Verse 5, he says, it's too small. It's not enough just to bring the Jewish people to God. The servant's going to do more. You, it's too small that you would be my servant just to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I'm going to do something greater than just bring the Jewish people to God. I will also make you to be a light unto the nations, so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. You see, the purpose, let me tell you, in the Tanakh, in the Old Covenant, Messiah would come for our people and also the Gentiles. We say, okay, that's good. What about the, that's the old covenant. Let's get to the new. Well, I want you to take a look. This, this is one of my favorite little exercises we do. Um, uh, B would be the pattern from the great ri- rabbi. Let me see. Do we have it up there? Good. The pattern from the great rabbi. I like to call him the great rabbi. He was a great rabbi. And uh, I want you to see his pattern. We know him. Most of us know him as the apostle Paul. He was the rabbi Saul. And we know his story that he persecuted believers to the death. This rabbi hated the believers, persecuted them to the death. Then God spoke to him in the book of Acts. We see the account where God opened his eyes. And the great rabbi Saul gets saved. The one who went persecuting Jewish believers. God spoke to his heart and he got saved. 
And then we see in the book of uh, Acts, chapter 13, this great rabbi who persecuted believers, became a believer. I like to think of my life like that because I used to make fun of the believers, but we'll get to that later. But anyway, this rabbi who hunted out the believers became a believer. And finally, he was called by God to go out through Asia Minor and the world and start churches or congregations. This is what he did the rest of his life. He gave his life to sharing the good news. Didn't matter whether they said, but if you go somewhere, they're going to kill you. He goes, that's okay. He says, I'm called to take this message throughout the world. He didn't, it didn't matter whether he died. He was giving his life for Yeshua. This great rabbi, but I want you to see his pattern. Now, the book of Acts, he's on his first journey. He does about three different journeys. The first journey he takes, and he goes around Asia Minor and different places. And what he does is he comes to an area of Irvine, starts a Bible study, gets some people saved, and starts a Messianic congregation. That's what this rabbi did. Well, it might not have been a Messianic congregation, but he starts a congregation. But I want you to see his pattern, what he did. It's very important. Acts chapter 13. An interesting little section. He goes and he's preaching throughout the whole book of, uh, the whole chapter 13. The next Sabbath, Nearly the whole city assembled to hear him speak the word of God. But when the Jewish people saw the crowds, they got angry. They were filled with jealousy. They began contradicting the things spoken by Paul. That was his uh, Greek name. It was not his, please, converted name. That was his Greek name, Paul. His name was Saul. Jewish people have various names, but uh, some, they're named in Hebrew. He had a Hebrew name, Saul, and, Rabbi, and Paul would be his Greek name. And it says, they began contradicting the things spoken by him. They were blessed and they turned against God. So Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly on this first journey. They said it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. It's an interesting phrase. He knew it was necessary to take the gospel to the Jewish people first and also the Gentiles. Everywhere this rabbi goes, he goes to the Jewish people. He said, well, of course he's Jewish, but he was called to go to who? Someone tell me. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. Everywhere he goes, he goes to the Jewish people because he remembered Isaiah 42, and he remembered Isaiah 49, that the purpose of Messiah is for our people, and also the Gentiles. So everywhere he goes, even though he's called to go to the Gentiles, even though the churches out there are called to take it somewhere else, they should be making sure Jewish people are always hearing the message. Just look what he says. He says, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. Since you reject it, you repudiate it, you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. We are now turning to the Gentiles. Now, this is interesting. Follow along. This great rabbi said, you Jewish people here, you reject it. All right. You don't want it. Good. I'm now going to go to the Gentiles. So the very next chapter, the, he leaves that town, and he goes to a place called Iconium, the next town. Everyone, tell me where he just said he was going to go to now. He's going to go to the Gentiles. He just said it. So we look at Acts chapter 14, verse 1. Now, when they had, uh, in Iconium, they entered the synagogue. I would say, wait a second, wait a second, Paul. You're not supposed to go here. You just said you're not going here. You're supposed to go to the Gentiles. I picture Paul going, oh, I forgot. The next town, look. Verse 1, he went to the synagogue of the Jews. He spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed both of Jews and Gentiles. I would say, you're supposed to go to the Gentiles. All right. So a few years later, he's on his second journey now. By now, he understands. He's The Jewish people rejected it. I'm going to the Gentiles. I'm called to the Gentiles. So let's see where he goes. Acts 17. He says, now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a misprint in my Bible. I don't get it. What are you doing? 
I thought you were going to go to the Gentiles. He's going to the synagogue again, synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them for three Sabbaths, reasoning with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Messiah had to suffer, rise again from the dead, saying, This Yeshua, whom I am proclaiming to you, he is the Messiah. Next town, still the second journey. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away to by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the, What is he doing? Will this man ever understand he's supposed to take the gospel to the Gentiles? Acts 18. He came to Ephesus. He left them there. Now he himself entered the, there he goes, the synagogue. Reason with them. Acts 19. And he entered the synagogue and continued to speak out boldly for three months, reasoning with them, persuading them about the kingdom of God. You see, everywhere he went, he went to the Jewish people. Now, I never understood how much Paul suffered at the hands of his own people. Until one day, I was traveling with my wife. We were in New Jersey, and we were going out Route 80. Those of you who know there's a Route 80 in California, same thing. Just take it from New Jersey, come right out here, all the way to California. We were traveling in Route 80 in New Jersey, and we stopped at one exit, and we went into this little Indian trading village. You know, little knickknacks and things. And, you know, Fran sees something and everything. You know, she's there. And I'm following behind her like a little puppy dog. She does this. I do this. And I'm just following her. And she's looking at everything. And then she gives me what I call the look. The look is, don't touch anything. You'll get in trouble. So I watch Fran go down this aisle. And I start going down this aisle. Get away from her. And all of a sudden, I saw up on the shelf here something that interests me. It was a nine-foot-long leather bullwhip. You know, men and women see different things. So I took this bullwhip off, and, you know, I've seen Indiana, and I've seen them all. So I decide I'm going to be Indiana. Crack! A good crack. The problem was I didn't know how to use it. The crack was right on my arm. Fran looks at me. I look at her. She goes, told you so. And back goes the whip. Now I look at my arm. Giant red mark down my whole arm. Ten minutes later, I looked at it again. Doubled in size. It was a thick white welt. I looked at it ten minutes later, and it continued to grow. Then I realized, the Apostle Paul, 195 lashes, the hands of his own people, beaten with rods, stoned and left for dead. Now listen, I am called to my people, but if I suffered like he did, I might start saying, Lord, is there a new group of people you want me to go to? Not only this, this man was not even called to the Jewish people. He was called to the Gentiles. So why is he going to the Jewish people? Because he knows something the world has forgotten. That is the good news belongs to my people. And that's why he did, that's why he was able to write in the book of Romans chapter one. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. And most people end the verse right there. But it says to the Jewish people first and also to the Gentiles. This We need to take the gospel to the Jewish people because God will bless you. It's the pattern of the whole Bible. God's always told us, how do we do it? Well, you pray for them. If you're afraid to witness to them, then tell them, come to Shuvah. Okay? Um, you could bless them in any way, pray for them, but always find ways to share your faith. Third reason you should take the good news to our Jewish people. It's a promise from God. Fill it in. Because God promises. Here's a great promise. He's going to save some. He doesn't say who or how many. Follow along. God called some in the ancient days. Romans chapter 11. 
Verse 1, we we read, I say then, God has not rejected the Jewish people. God has not rejected them, cast them aside, thrown them away permanently, forever, not at all. The great rabbi who's writing Romans, he's saying not at all. Using the strongest possible phrase, he says, may it never be. For I too, present tense, am an Israelite. I love sometimes when I go to churches and they look at me and they say, tell me, Larry, what was it like being a Jew? (laughs) I said, let me assure you. I still am Jewish. It's never changed. Now, just to help here, there is Judaism, a religion, and there's Jewish people. We are a nationality as well. You can't change my blood. You can't change who I am. Black people that accept Jesus do not become white. Just, just doesn't happen. <laughs> Unless you're Michael Jackson. Anyway, we're not going to go there. But anyway, he's not around, so I shouldn't be saying that. Okay, so, a woman accepts Yeshua. She doesn't become a man. So what has changed is I don't follow Orthodox, conservative, reformed Judaism. Neither do most of my people either. So I don't follow that. But I still am present tense a Jew. That can't change. It never changes. And because of that, I am called by God to be a special part of his people, giving a special message. Follow along. Paul says, I too, present tense, am an Israelite. Never changed. I'm a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people. As the world says today, replacement theology, dual covenant theories. God hasn't changed his uh, promise to his people. Do you not know that the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God concerning or against Israel? The passage with Elijah is this, everyone. Elijah did had a great battle, uh, had, a, had a great confrontation, I should say, against Ahab and his how many prophets? You're well educated. Good, right. Just to let you know. His confrontation seems to be with 850 prophets, 450 with Baal, and 400 more, it says, with Asherah. So anyway, so he has this great confrontation with them, and he has this great victory, and he calls down fire from God, and God speaks to them, and he says, worship God. And then all of a sudden, he gets a, he has this great victory, and he kills all the false prophets. And then he's there, and I guess relishing in a nice victory that God has brought. And all of a sudden, a little messenger says, by the way, Jezebel is waiting for you, and she's going to kill you. He just had all the prophets in against the king. So uh, Elijah, in his great noble way, ran away, got scared. And he ran away, and he went all the way down to Beersheba, and then he went all the way down to Mount Sinai, and he ran away, shaking and scared to death. And his prayer is really God. He says, I'm the only believer left in Israel. Just because there were thousands of people in Israel didn't mean they all followed God. In fact, most of them didn't. There was always a small group. And Elijah says, nobody's left, God. I'm the only one. Everyone has forsaken you. All of Israel has turned away. I'm the only one left, so you might as well kill me. He was really, it seemed like he was praying to die. And then we see the answer here. Verse 3, Lord, this is what he said. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've torn down all your altars. I'm alone left, and they're seeking to kill me too. But what is God's response to him, divine response? God says, I have kept for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I still have 7,000 faithful in Israel. This is what I want to say. In the Tanakh, in the Old Covenant, with all the people in Israel, God always had his handful of believers. And I hate to say this, not all Israel, it says, are Israel. All that means is, not all the Jewish people in the world are true believers in God. There's a small group of Jewish believers in God, and we are called the remnant. And what Paul is saying here, in the Old Covenant, there was a small group, a remnant, of Jewish believers within all of Israel. There's many Jewish people. Just because you're Jewish doesn't mean you believe in God. 
Within Israel, Paul says there is a small group. But he says in every age there will be. Follow along with me. What he says is God, uh, God has called some today. Romans 11.5, he says the same thing. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. God has always saved Jewish people. Old covenant, Yeshua's time, Middle Ages, there was always a small group of Jewish believers, and there still are today. And God is still saving his Jewish people today. There's a story told about these two men. One went to a church on a Sunday morning, and the other was a, uh, a worker for the Lord, and he, uh, and he went to a certain house to pray for the salvation of Jewish people. And they came back together. The worker and this guy, we'll call him a churchman, went to church, and they got back together and they were talking. And the man who went to the church said to the other guy, where did you go this morning and why? And the man says, well, I went to the certain house to pray for the salvation of Jewish people. And the churchman looked at him and said, well, don't you know that today Jewish people can't be saved? And so the worker said, well, that's interesting. Where did you go this morning and why? The man who went to the church said, well, I went to St. Paul's Cathedral to remember the salvation of St. Paul. So the worker said, so who was St. Paul? He said, well, I guess he was a Jewish believer in Jesus. He goes, well, you're right. He said, did you do any music there this morning? And the church said, yes, we sung Mendelssohn. And the worker said, well, who was Mendelssohn? And he says, well, I guess he was a great German composer. And the worker said, no, he was a Jewish believer in Jesus. He said, by the way, who preached this morning at your church? He said, my Bishop Abrams, of course. In the Jewish audience, they get it. Okay. And he said, he was also a Jewish believer. And by the way, you're talking now to me, a Jewish believer. You see, God is always saving Jewish people. That's the business. That's what God does. He saves our people. I come from Philadelphia, a middle-class Jewish neighborhood. The only thing I'd ever heard about Yeshua Jesus, he was for them. That's the mentality of a Jewish person. The world's divided up into two groups of people. There's the Jews and the Gentiles. The Gentiles, they have Jesus. We don't. That's the way we like it, and that's the way we're content with it. And that's what was in my neighborhood until a family moved into my neighborhood by the name of Finkelstein. Now, the Finkelsteins, in case you're not aware, that's a Jewish name. The Finkelsteins moved into our neighborhood, and they started sharing with all of us in the neighborhood that Yeshua was the Messiah. Their home became famous and written up in a book. Their home, because in the 60s and 70s, we all looked different than we do today. And we all were weird back then, and we'd all go to the Finkelsteins' home. And the book, their little chapter they wrote about the Finkelstein was called the Fink Zoo, because of all the weird people in the house. Now, there were hippies in this house, all kinds of weird people in this house. But the Finkelsteins, they would share the good news. And one by one, Jewish young men and women started accepting and praying to, that Yeshua was the Messiah. Me, I didn't know what to make of it. I knew I was against them. I knew I spoke about it. Until one day, my good friend, Mark Ellett, right over there, he came to me. And he said to me, after two years, he said, he now believed that Yeshua was the Messiah. We've been friends since we were five years old, so I did the right appropriate thing. I slammed the door in his face, kicked him out of my house, told him I never wanted to see him again. Don't come back. Don't ever come to my house. So what did he do? The next day, he came back to my house with a Bible and someone from the Finkelsteins. Now, I want you to understand, it was Mark and it was someone from the Finkelsteins came into my home, but the person from the Finkelsteins never said a word. All they did was stare at me. Because I look different than I do today. In fact, they had a nickname for me back then. Back then, they called me the caveman. Because I had a big beard. I had a huge, famous mustache. 
My hair was long. I had hair. In fact, my wife says, how did you used to comb it? And I go like this. But anyway, I, I always wore my army shirt. I always wore my jeans. So they said, don't share your faith with the caveman because the caveman is dangerous. So Mark came over my house with a Bible. And I wanted to talk about sports, politics, current events, girls, whatever I wanted to talk about. He looked at me and said, you know, that reminds me about a story in the Bible. How he always got the Bible. That's what you do. That's what he did. How he always got the Bible and I'll never know. But he always got it, always had a story. I couldn't believe it. he always had some story. Get a story in the Bible and just talk about it. And, and, and so he started always sharing his faith with me and I didn't know if he was crazy. So I went to sleep at night. The caveman went to sleep. They said nothing was ever getting through the caveman. Nothing at all ever entered into my mind. So, but they didn't know I'd go to sleep at night lying there saying to God, I didn't know how to pray. I didn't go Baruch I didn't say that. I said, God, is he crazy? Or are you real? I would like to know. And God answered me. I didn't see a vision, didn't hear a voice. Mark kept coming over with the Bible. And I kept seeing the Messianic prophecies, which I'll be sharing with you in about three or four more classes from now. He shared all the Messianic passages. And God made it very clear Yeshua was the Messiah. Then Mark would look at me and say, you know, it's not enough. I said, what do you mean? I, I see he's the Messiah. He says, no, it's not enough. You have to personally ask Yeshua to come into your heart. I said, oh, never. I'll never become like one of you. And I said, besides, we talk about asking Yeshua in your heart. I didn't know what he meant. How do you get him in? So I remember one night, no one was around. I felt safe. I was lying down in my bedroom, and I started talking to God again. I said, okay, God, I remember what he said. Invite you in. I said, okay, come on in. <laughs> and I waited for some kind of reaction. There was no reaction. I was scared because I thought if there was, I was going to tell him to get back out. So, but, and I told Mark, I said, I did ask him to come in. And he got me real upset because he pointed his finger and said, you're getting close. And I didn't want to hear that. But I remember finally I went to a movie on January 15, 1972. Prophecy about Israel. Into someone's house. They showed this movie. And afterwards a Jewish man stood up that night and he said, How many tonight for the first time would like to ask Yeshua, Jesus, into your heart? Raise your hand. So I raised my hand. I didn't know all the people from Finkelstein were there. And they were, oh, the cape man raised his hand. The cape man raised his hand. That night I prayed and asked Yeshua to come in my heart. And I remember that night it was the night before Super Bowl, actually. It was the night before Super Bowl. And I went home that night, and I got in my bedroom, and I was lying down there, and I said to myself, I became one of them. And I knew nothing in all the world would ever change it. I knew at that moment. I mean, I told Mark two things. One, I will never change a thing. I told him that. Within eight months, I'm in Moody Bible Institute. The beard came, the hair was cut, the army shirt was the Japan. I said, second, I will never tell a person. I'm going to be a silent believer my whole life. I know what I had to do to get into the kingdom of heaven. I did accept Yeshua. I told God I believed I'm a sinner. Yeshua died for me. Come into my life. I did that. No one will ever know I'm a believer. Now, this was in Philadelphia. Within the week, I got a call from my mother in Florida. She went, what have you done? I don't know how it got down to my mom. But the point of the whole story is Romans 11.5. In the same way, then, there has also come to be a remnant according to God's gracious choice. They're out there 
waiting for you to share your faith with cavemen. With people you don't think want to hear your you at all. They're waiting and God has prepared their hearts. We need to take the gospel, the good news of Yeshua, to the Jewish people. One, God's going to bless you. Two, you're commanded to. It's the pattern of the Bible. Three, he's still going to save them. And last and most important, fourth, I want you to write it down. Probably most important. Everyone, write this down. We should take the good news because it's your responsibility. We live in an age where people don't want to take responsibility. It is our responsibility. We must do this. A, follow along. God's purpose for Israel. Deuteronomy 28, what's God's purpose for Israel? Now it shall be that if you diligently, Israel, obey the Lord your God, you're careful to obey his all his commandments, which I command you today. The Lord your God will set you high. God says to the Jewish people, if you do what I tell you, you follow my commandments, everyone look up here. I'm going to lift you up higher and higher. If you follow me, I will bless you. I'll lift you up higher and higher. Set you high above all the nations. All these blessings will come upon you. Israel, if you obey me. Verse 15. But it shall come about if you do not obey me, the Lord your God, to observe all the commandments and the statutes, which I charge you today, that all these curses are going to come upon you, Israel. God said to the Jewish people, if you, God's purpose for Israel, God revealed himself to Israel. Israel, tell the world about me. We as a people are called to tell the world about God about the Messiah. That's the purpose. When a Jewish person comes to faith in Yeshua, that is the most natural right thing in the world that God designed. Jewish people are supposed to do that. God says, if you do that, I'm going to bless you. But if you don't do what I'm called to do, Israel, I'm going to have to punish you. And in Deuteronomy 28, God gives a list of punishments that he's going to inflict on his people if they didn't obey him. If they didn't walk with him, if they didn't keep his commandments and his statutes. And God always keeps his promise, even if he has to discipline his children. And God did discipline his children. And follow, look at one of the worst disciplines in verse 64, Deuteronomy 28. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other end. And there you shall serve other gods, wood, stone, whom your fathers have not known. You see, God said to the Jewish people, if you don't obey me, if you don't follow me, if you don't walk in my statutes and commandments, I will discipline you. And ultimately, I will pluck you out of the land of Israel and scatter you to the four ends of the earth. Listen carefully. God kept his promise. He took my people out of the land of Israel, destroyed the temple, destroyed the land, and scattered them to the four ends of the earth in 70 CE. God kept his promise. And many people in the world have said, Amen, that's where they belong, scattered. I believe, let me tell you what I think the heart of God was. God scattered his people because they didn't follow him. And I think God said, I still love my people. How will I reach them now? You know what I think God said? I know what I'll do. I will save the Gentiles. They will form congregations and they will love my people back into the kingdom. The church has not done that. That's why I believe God, for one reason, has raised up messianic congregations. Fill it in here. B, God's purpose for you and me. He tells us, the great rabbi told us, I say then God did not, the, the Jewish people didn't stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, follow this verse carefully. The Jewish people sin. Salvation, the blessings of salvation. Everyone look up here. Because of their sin, God has taken the blessings, the promises, not the promise, the blessings and the, uh, the word of God. And he's taken all this and he's given them to the Gentiles. What's the rest of the verse say? Why did he do it? To provoke them 
to jealousy. The word provoke means to make somebody's mouth water for what rightfully belongs to them has been taken away and given to somebody else. The Gentiles and the churches are supposed to love my people into the kingdom of God. But they have not done that. Rather, they've been arrogant. The, the passage does warn us. Don't be arrogant toward them. Love the Jewish people. When a Gentile person comes up and says, I love you. My God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. My Messiah is Jewish. When, when Jewish people see that, you can provoke them to a godly jealousy. That's what we're called to do. And throughout the ages, there have been Gentiles that have loved my people into the kingdom of God. When I go to Israel, we always go, many tours do, we go to a place called Yad Vashem. It's the remembrance of the Holocaust. And there's a street in Yad Vashem called the Avenue of the Righteous. This is the Gentiles, the righteous Gentiles that have loved my people into the kingdom of God. We've seen the movie, uh, Oscar Schindler was the Schindler's List. This man who was willing to save thousands and thousands of Jewish people at the expense of his life. We had a woman here also years ago for one of our specials, a woman by the name of Irene Gott Updike. I don't know if you remember this woman, but one of you gave me her name. She lived in uh, Yorba Linda, and I got in touch with her. And when I went over her house, she showed me this older Jew, uh, older Catholic, Catholic woman, Gentile woman. She showed me all her medals that the government of Israel had gave, given her. And that she was honored by the nation of Israel. And she was on the Avenue of the Righteous. And she got all these. And I found out her story was that in 1939, she was a young Polish girl. And when the Germans came in, she ran over toward the Russians. And the Russians attacked her as a teenager, 17-year-old girl. And they raped her and left her dead in the woods. She survived. And she came back into the German section. And there was a German officer who got her. And he made her in charge of his mansion, this, this young girl. It's a fascinating book. He made her in charge. She was a 19-year-old girl. She was a nurse. And he made her take care of his mansion, order all the food, take care of all his parties. And she, she lived in the house. And in his giant mansion, below in the basement, there was a giant, giant section. She made a giant uh, apartment place. Really, very big to live. And what the Germans didn't know upstairs, while they were having parties, she had down below, I think it was 12 Jewish people couple Jewish families that she provided all the food. She got up there and they were from the Germans. She ordered all the food and she provided for them and took care of them. And not only that, one had a baby. She was a nurse. She nursed the child and she took care of the child and she saved the Jewish people. And after the war, I found out later, the Russians had a, a, a contract out on her because they said that she was escaped from the Russians. They wanted to kill her. The Jewish people, they hid her that she hid them, they hid her and protected her. And this woman, when I was talking to her, I was so concerned because she spoke to us. I said, do you know Yeshua, Jesus? Because I was so concerned she did so many good things for the Jewish people. She goes, yeah, my son-in-law told me all about him and I accepted the Lord. I went, oh, I'm so happy. Here was a woman who just didn't do great things, but she also accepted the Lord. She's on the avenue of the righteous. There are many, many Gentiles that realize their responsibility. We are all called to take the good news of Yeshua to the Jewish people. Why? God is going to bless you for it. Two, it's the pattern of the Bible. Three, God is still saving my people today. Four, it's our responsibility to do it. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that you impress upon our hearts the need to take the good news to our Jewish people, even if they make fun of us, even if they attack us, no matter what the cost, 
We pray, Lord, that you would speak to each of us, send us forth with your power, your unction, your Holy Spirit, that we might have the blessing of telling Jewish people that their Messiah has come and that it's Yeshua. And maybe there's even someone here today that's heard the message many times. And right now they would say, I would like Yeshua in my heart. And you're not sure how to do that. And simple, the Bible teaches that you just tell God you believe that you've sinned against him. You believe Yeshua died for me. I now want to accept him into my heart and my life as my Messiah and Savior. We thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for this day. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. So all stand together. We'd like to conclude. We're going to continue the series. You don't want to miss any of the series. You get all the outlines. These will be taped. So I'll bow together for the benediction. Yo er Adonai Panavalecha Vichuneka Yusar Adonai Panavalecha Vichuneka Shalom The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon you and give you his peace. B'Shem Yeshua Meshichinu Baruch HaBaba Shem Adonai Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and our Messiah Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. On the cutting edge of the Messianic movement, Solace Radio will rock your faith and bring the Bible alive. Find your Savior. Find Yeshua HaMashiach and explore the whole Bible and discover treasures there. Solace Radio.